From Vine Pairs New York City headquarters, I'm Joanna Sherino. In Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And in beautiful Napa, California, I'm Adam Teeter. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Is it beautiful right now? It's really <laughs> beautiful. It's just also starting to get really hot. Tomorrow's going to be 100 degrees. Oh. Isn't there like a, yeah, there's like a heat advisory happening across most of the country right yeah. now. Big heat Not here in Seattle. <laughs> oh, 59 coming. degrees and rainy. Thank you, January. <laughs> 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 yeah, it is. Uh, it's going to be a hot one here. There was a, there was already a fire too. Um, they put oh, it they shit. put it out, but there was a fire. It got really close to a few wineries on the Silverado Trail. Um, yeah, last week or something, I think. So yeah, that's already a thing, which is woo fun. But in other news, what have you both been drinking? I'll go first. Yeah. Um, Evan and I recently had a friend visit from out of town from London. We haven't seen him in a bit. So Ooh. we finally took the opportunity to go to Finback Brewery nice. in Brooklyn, which we've been meaning to go to on Adam's recommendation. Um, and that was great. Uh, the The beer there is obviously very great, but like the green terrazzo countertop is amazing. <laughs> I mean, I want that for my own home. It's so fucking cool. I love um, and the place. food, food as well. We got the entire menu of food except for the wings. Um, they have amazing dumplings and salads and things like that. And then for beer, I had their newish Vienna Lager, which was great. And uh, their Finback IPA I tried as well. So that was great. And then also I had a good canned ranch water. Oh. Yeah. I, from June Shine, actually. Whoa. Um, it actually has tequila in it okay. and, uh, both lemon and lime juice. Interesting. Um, and that, that was very, very good. So I was, cool. I was very impressed at, um, with that. Uh, what about you? Ooh. Yeah. June shine. Wow. Mm-hmm. Joanna, I need to know though, first, what are you have against wings? Oh, I, <laughs> there were like, there were like 12, um, menu items and I was like, okay, let's just not mess with the wings right now. I have nothing against wings. Okay, I do like wings. <laughs> Next time I'll get the wings. Next time. <laughs> Next time You're going back just for the wings. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no beer, just, just wings. <laughs> what about you, Zach? Um, so I think the most exciting thing I had uh, over this last week was uh, Caitlin and I opened mm-hmm. a bottle of Chinon uh, from uh, Bernard Baudry, one of the top producers in the region. Uh, the uh, Le Clos Guillaume. God, French is hard sometimes. <laughs> and, I, you know, Chinon is an appellation in the Loire Valley that's um, known for Cabernet Franc. Um, and I, it, it's been sometimes for me like this this kind of uh, style and and appellation that i love and then sometimes you get ones and you're just like whoa um and i the reason for that is that like when made well or when you get the right degree of ripeness in the grapes it has this beautiful mix of like tart fruit uh you know kind of a a herbal spicy note but also you know it's a sort of a lighter to medium bodied wine and sometimes you get them and they're just a little too green and vegetal and i don't mind a little bit of that in my wine in fact i kind of like it in a in a wine like a chinon but uh, this one was really beautiful. It was 2015, so it had a little bit of age to it, which we also mm. enjoyed. Um, and then I think the only other thing that I had le- recently, um, in, again, kind of on the topic of my cocktail creation mm-hmm. adventures. So I made sushi uh, at home, uh, as I've done a couple times recently, because it's Solomon's favorite food. And um, turns out that if you make it at home, it's cheaper than going taking your almost four-year-old son out to sushi and then watching him eat like an adult portion of things. <laughs> and so... I was one of the things I've been I've been sort of slowly acquiring ingredients to kind of up my sushi game such as it is. And I bought mm-hmm. some um, yuzu ponzu the other day or a couple oh, of days nice. ago. Um, and I was like, huh, I wonder if I can make a drink with this. Um, for those who don't know, so yuzu is a 
Asian citrus, kind of similar to a lemon. And then um, ponzu is like a soy dressing, basically. And I was like, okay, well, here's a citrus note. Here's a savory note, like kind of a, you know, obviously a little umami from the soy and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of... <laughs> I'll be honest, I didn't actually, I was like making this while also trying to make sushi. So my recollection of the exact proportions is a little off, but I was like, okay, we're going to kind of stick on theme here. So there's the uh, Roku Jin, which I had talked about uh, on a previous episode. Um, and so it was about a about an ounce and a half of gin, about a half an ounce of the Yuzu Ponzu, about a half an ounce of a blood orange liqueur, uh, and then mm. a half ounce of fresh lemon. Um, it was really good, really refreshing. Definitely not like to soy sauce e, which was my concern in using that ingredient, but I think it came out really nicely. Yeah, half an ounce feels like it. It might be. Yeah, maybe it was. It probably was actually probably somewhere between a quarter and a half ounce. Honestly, I kind of eyeballed it um, on that one. So you know, it was, uh, and I was making one. You know, two of them I was making one each for me and Caitlin. So maybe it was. Maybe it was actually a half ounce split between the two drinks. And now that I think about it, so yeah. But it was you. You definitely got the note of it. Like it was in there. You could tell. But it was uh, very. You know, wasn't too overpowering. So adventurous. I love it. Very cool. How about you, Adam? So for me, uh, I obviously had a lot of tequila last week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, so, so the most memorable cocktail was the winning cocktail from last week, which was a cocktail called Teal. Um, and it was, uh, it was the product of a bartender named Harrison Kinney, who um, is from Australia and is the sort of creative director of a, um, of a place called um, Cantina OK in Sydney, which mm-hmm. is a amazing bar. Also happens to be on the list of the top 50 bars in the world, which we will talk about in a second. That's what this topic is if you've read the show notes already. And it was this just incredible cocktail that literally tasted like a fresh produce market in Mexico City. Wow. Um, he had kiwi in it. He had celery. He had – basically the idea of teal was that the, he only used um, fruits and vegetables that had a teal color to them. Um, lime juice, obviously, fresh lime juice. And then the, the drink just had this beautiful teal color, and then he floated olive oil on top. Um, mm. And it was just like one of those cocktails that you have, and you're like, I would drink 20 of these. You know, if you just kept giving me them, I would keep drinking them. They were refreshing. And because it was all the fresh fruit and be- fresh squeezed fruit and vegetable juices, you were like, this could be healthy, right? <laughs> like, this could be good for me. Um, and it was just a really incredible drink. So that was um, the most memorable cocktail I had. And then I took a little break from drinking. <laughs> I got back. Um, but right before I came out here to the Napa Valley, I had dinner uh, in Manhattan with some friends at Pasquale Jones. And nice. It was, I haven't been there in a minute. I know, but you know, that pizza's really good. It's um, so good. And the SOM team is amazing. And Kevin, who was my SOM, recommended this really amazing bottle of white burgundy from Vere Classe and the Mecanet. And it is, I'm going to butcher it because I don't speak French, so come at me. It's Heritiers <laughs> du Comte La Femme. So. <laughs> Heritiers du Comte Lafon. It was amazing. Like just a really beautiful wine and um, somewhat, I have to say somewhat, somewhat affordable for a white burgundy. Um, definitely more affordable than other places, uh, you know, other areas of, of burgundy, but it was just, it was a really beautiful wine and everyone on the table was like, holy crap, this is good. Um, so those awesome. were, those were the two really memorable things I drank before I came out here. So, for today's topic, I thought we'd talk about the 50 best bars. 
lists in general, but really with a focus on the 50 best bars. And uh, I have a lot of thoughts, but <laughs> my uh, that I want to get into. But my one big thought is it actually is a killer for bars. That it actually destroys a bar when they wind up on the list. That hmm. the second a bar winds up on the 50 best list, that's the day the bar dies. And, you know, I have a lot of reasons for thinking this um, that we can get into. And look, and I want to I want to be clear. I understand that it's very good for the bar to wind up on this list initially, right? There's lots of there's lots of research that proves that revenues go up by 25 to 30 percent for most bars. Um, you know, it it attracts a brand new host of clients to the bar. Um, but I think it also does a lot more harm than good for a lot of these bars. Uh, but before we get into my my reasonings for it, um, what do you both think of of this list or lists in general like this? I think they're good and they're bad, mm-hmm. kind of for the reasons that you've pointed out for for the good reasons. Like I think obviously it gives a lot of visibility to bars mm-hmm. around the world that people wouldn't otherwise know about. I think as a result, then um, you have people using these lists as a resource mm-hmm. for when they're traveling. So then you have out of towners using those lists and then your clientele changes pretty drastically, maybe not for the better. And then you maybe lose your local appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's certainly something I have felt with bars in New York City um, who have become very, very popular as a result of being on lists like this. But yeah, I think ultimately, like you said, Adam, like this is good for them, right? They need, This is good recognition mm-hmm. that they might not otherwise have so so i feel like it's it's kind of hard it's um to kind of say that it really is a a curse for these bars (laughs) um but i but i do think that especially if you place high on this or low (laughs) like if you're in the top 10 of of this list in particular then it's tough because you can kind of only go down from there you're getting to one of my key points yeah and that's that's tough too because as a bar that's a lot of pressure, mm-hmm. um, and the expect there are certain expectations. Obviously, then for people who are visiting your bar from around the world or locally, whatever, um, that you know, it's you're going to get a certain experience that got you onto that list in the first place, um, and maybe you know things have changed. Your business has changed as a result, and then you can't really uphold those expectations. Maybe. Yep. That's that's. I I really feel very strongly about that. I think. You know, one of the things, one of the issues I have with these lists is that they're lists, right? So this isn't like Michelin star, right? Yes, I understand that you can lose a star, but every year you have the opportunity to keep that one, two or three stars or gain a star, right? So you could be a three-star Michelin restaurant forever. The problem is Mm -hmm. if you're the number one bar on the list and you fall to the number 10, or you're you know right. number one bar in the world, and then a local you know the, your regional top fifty list comes out, and you fall to eight in your region, right? Or eight it's in the your ranking. Country. The ranking is the issue, right? right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then everyone starts to say, "Huh? So does the place suck now?" Because if you fall down, something must have changed, right? And what changed? Mm-hmm. Did they lose their original bartender? Did the drinks quality go down? You know, all these things people start to ask. And that's what happens with ranked lists, right? So you're not giving that bar the opportunity to still have, I don't know, three shakers or whatever you want to say, right? And just always maintain it's three shakers because you've now 
lowered them in ranking and or you remove them from the list entirely for some bars. And these bars are still great, but you only have 50 spots. And so it's it's really, really harmful to the bar. And I think it's a huge issue that bartenders will talk to you about privately that none of them want to say publicly. Um, it's just a huge problem with the, with a list like this. I also want to say, I think another potential pratfall or, or issue with these kinds of lists is they are, you know, looking through kind of how uh, they they kind of organize mm-hmm. the the list and and sort of how the the results are come to. You you do get into a bit of a problem of you know kind of a, a sort of a real issue of like how exactly do you quantify a great bar? One hundred percent. And I think a thing that you see recurring throughout a lot of these bars is you know they 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 all I think you would I mean understandably maybe for something like this they're all you know, very high-end cocktail bars. Um, you know, you're not getting a cross-section of every kind of, you know, bar that you can find in America or, or North America, I should say. And more than that, I think that they, you know, there there is something about this sort of approach that I find, um, I guess it's it's not all that dissimilar, maybe from a Michelin star list, as mm-hmm. you were talking about, or maybe a, um, you know, maybe like a, a, you know, those kinds of things where like you have, they're going to so clearly be geared towards one specific kind of experience. Mm-hmm. And Michelin has done a little bit to try and kind of get away from, you know, a very formal style of service as their only real signpost for what denotes a great restaurant. Um, but still they're really pretty beholden to white tablecloth, you know, formal service, et cetera. And, but, but at the same time, I think that we, you know, you look at the, the bars on this list and undoubtedly there's a lot of great bars here. No one would dispute that. It's not like right. it's a bunch of garbage bars, but it is kind of with, with some, with some exceptions, it is kind of a list too, that really struggle to me. It just seems like, okay, yes, here are some great bars, but I'm not convinced that this list is particularly it's not that it's missing things. It's that it's measuring a very specific kind of thing. And I'm not sure that we really need that thing measured very closely. I agree with you. And I think, you know, the big, the, the other issues I have with these lists is one, um, especially in, in the, in the idea of Michelin, right? If we're going to, if we're going to compare them, Michelin says, these are the, this is the These are the cities, Right. Michelin is coming to Austin or Michelin is finally coming to New York or whatever. And then they concentrate on that city. Right. And Mm -hmm. they, they never say Michelin is coming to the United States because that is very hard to do. And one of the things that these lists do is they say, these are the top 50 bars in the United States. No, they're fucking not because there are a lot of great bars that just got left off because they're in like horse Inn that we named, you know, our next wave award winner last year. That is a fucking great bar. And that should 100% be part of the conversation. But I understand it's in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. It is a small town in Pennsylvania that I'm sure the members of the top 50 committee do not go to, right? So it gets left off. There are great bars in Birmingham, Alabama, in, you know, in other parts of the country, in, in Denver, in Boulder, right? That just, again, I understand you cannot visit so then to say the list, it's it's like my, my issue again with saying like the the winner of the Super Bowl is the world champion, right? No, you're not. <laughs> you're the champion of the NFL, <laughs> which only exists in the United States. Like, 
And the only reason you're the world champion is because you think that no one else plays football. But guess what? They actually play football in Canada. So, like, you're not even really the world <laughs> champion, right? It's this idea that, like, you're covering everything. And I understand why that helps you with the press and whatever. But, like, you're not the best bar in America because you actually weren't judged against every other bar. And that's what yeah. I think Michelin, again, gets right is they say, look, these are the multiple three-star restaurants in this one city that we decided to concentrate on for all the reasons we decided to concentrate on. Number two, with these lists, for the most part, and I'm picking on top 50 here, but I think all of them have this issue, who the judges are is very vague. And I do not think that's fair. Again, I think if you're Michelin and it's criticism and, you know, you have a long history of critics who don't want to be known at all the papers, et cetera, and they're not visiting for real experiences, but, like, once it's a list, and again, you're you're claiming that something out of all of them is the best, then you need to list who the judges are. And I think you need to also demand that the judges show their receipts within the last year that they actually were at these places. Because I think one of the biggest issues you hear again from bartenders is it often feels a lot like a majority of these of the time, a lot of the judges voted for a place just because they they've heard from friends at school. It's like where everyone's going, it's like the buzzy place, and that's what happens, right? It's groupthink. Okay, cool. Everyone's talking about X bar, so we should just all say that X bar has got to be the spot. That This X bar is doing tons of pop-ups around the globe, and people are talking about the bartenders and whatever, and they may or may not have ever had a drink there. And then the my other – my final issue with these lists is, okay, you named the bar number one, so then actually tell me why it's number one. What does it have – over every other bar on the list. What are they doing right. so right? And none of these lists do that. So like, okay. It's, Especially when it's like a bar that's been around for a while. For a long and time. And then it's suddenly number one. <laughs> right. That's You're number like, hmm. one. And that happens to be number one because it was in a location of arguably the bar that started the craft cocktail movement and, you know, comes from the, that line of royalty of cocktail bars. But a lot of the, I mean, my issue with the top 50 list this year for the United States is that, there's a lot of other people who came out of Sasha's world who have great bars and none of their bars are on the list. Right. And how come it's this one bar? And look, don't get me wrong. Attaboy is a great bar. It is a great bar. But again, and I, I don't mean to take anything away from them here. I just want to know then, like, why is it number one? Why is Limon Tour, you know, number three? Like, I, I, I want justification. I want to be told this is what we did to say this is why. Because again, at, at this moment, at yes. this moment in time, and the yeah. bar, because also I think it's fair to the other bars to know so that then they can say, cool, like if we really want to be number one next year, this is what we think we might need to improve. You know, mm-hmm. here's how we strive for this and for the number one bar. Okay, shit, we better not slip up. We better not lose all these things or make us number one or we're going to fall because that also really sucks. And mm-hmm. it really hurts the bar in the long run. And I just, I don't, I don't know if how it seems like it it's very recently but it feels like top 50 became very important very quickly in the bar world and now it's like the dominating ranking that everyone wants to win and i just don't think it's good for the culture of bars in the long run do you want to know why i think this is adam why i think it's because and you can actually look at this year's list as an example of it because two of the of the bars on here now granted they're in the 30s so it's not like they were at the very top of the list but death and co has two satellite locations on this list Mm -hmm. and i think if you're a if you're an operator 
I mean, you got to be thinking, I don't know about franchise isn't quite the right word, but you got to be thinking about expanding because one of the challenges in the bar industry is like, there's just a maximum amount of, of revenue you can generate in one location. And you can do what some people do, which is operate, you know, multiple bars in the same city. And that's one way to go about doing it. Or you can look to say, hey, look, I was, you know, we were the number one bar in America uh, or in North America. And uh, we want to open a location in, you know, a place that's not on this list. We want to open a location. I mean, there's lots of great bar cocktail cities on this uh, that are not anywhere represented on this list. Yeah. We want to open a bar in Austin. We want to open a bar in Seattle. We want to open a bar in, you know, pick a place. But the point is that I think that the reason that it's gotten some a lot of traction and it has a, a cachet in the industry is because it's an incredibly easy thing to point to and say, we were the number three best bar in North America. Like, the average person is going to be like, holy shit, that bar must be incredible. I want to go there. Or yeah. holy shit, I want to invest, you know, a million dollars in opening a new location, you know, with these people or whatever, right? Like, there's just a lot of cachet that comes with anything that's got that degree of accomplishment attached to it. I think the the point you made before, Adam, about this sort of opacity of the judging is a good one. I mean, you guys can go look at the list uh, or at the website for 50 Best and take a look at the voting parameters and understand them. They're they're pretty vague in general. Extremely. Um, and I think you're probably you're probably right that there's some um, amount of like, oh, I heard this bar was great or like, again, how do you even know a bar, you know, unless you're doing, you know, unless you're going in there regularly and ordering a lot of different drinks, you go in and have two drinks there and they're both really good. Okay, cool. But like, that doesn't inherently mean that the the bar is great. It just means you maybe got lucky or, you know, what happens if you go in on a Tuesday night and it's slow and you get, you know, a bartender who has lots of time to take on the drink. And then you go in a month later after it's been on this list and it's, you know, a two hour wait on a Saturday night and everyone is packed in and it's just like, okay, I got a drink that, you know, the barback made, um, no shade to barbacks. Mm-hmm. I was one, but like, there's just a big, there's just a lot there that I think, you know, in, in, in anything like this, right. You know, this has always been the issue to some extent with rankings, criticism, et cetera, of this category where each thing is made individually and therefore is much more, um, variable than like a movie or a book or something that is always going to be the same. Um, I do think that 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 is a piece of this where it pretends to a level of um, accuracy and consistency that just is impossible in this industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was also going to add that these lists are always going to like they're inevitably going to feel very too subjective, especially for the picks in your own city. Right. Like, and we talk about this with the New York bars, like, why did this, like, why did this place get this number? Mm -hmm. Why isn't this on the list? Like, why wasn't this higher? Oh, this place is overrated. It should be lower. And I think that that's always going to happen. And I think it comes, you know, obviously comes back to this methodology and in how they approach putting this list together. Like, instead of just having people by region going to these places and making nominees for a specific city across the country and in North America, like, we're not sure exactly how how it gets done. Well, I want to ask actually an editorial question to you, Joanna, and and you too, Adam, if you have thoughts on this. So, at Vinepair, we've been rolling out this list of kind of uh, drinking guides to either yeah. individual cities or parts of cities. In the case of something like New York or Los Angeles, and you know, I wrote the Seattle one, um, which I think is pretty good, but <laughs> I would. Um, but you know, when I was talking to you and to a set about putting this list together or putting the the guide together, you know, a thing that we very specifically talked about was, okay, it's not going to just be the fanciest, trendiest cocktail bars in Seattle. Like that would not be, that might be a, a, there might be a certain utility to that, but it doesn't really meet what I think we all 
you know, what you envisioned for the piece. And so I'm wondering if, you know, and obviously it wasn't meant to be a ranking. It wasn't here are the nine best places to drink in Seattle or whatever. It was just nine great places. And I wonder if there's just like, if you could talk about why it was important in for these drinking guides to be more of that and not just here are what we think are the nine or however many best, you know, bars or places Mm -hmm. to drink in this location. Yeah. I mean, I think it comes back to exactly what we're talking about here, right? Like there's no way to be comprehensive about this or for our, the scope of this project for us and, um, you know, the resources that we have, it's just impossible to, it feels and felt impossible to do that. And also just like not what we're about as a brand as well. Like we're not creating a 50 best list ourselves. Um, drinking again is, I feel like subjective and these are recommendations from Vinepair and our experts in specific cities like yourself, Zach. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think it also goes back to the fact that like, yeah, maybe the nine fanciest cocktail bars aren't actually the best in the city. Maybe they're the newest, but I think it, it does take a discerning palette and somebody's point of view and perspective to um, decide. And I think that's what we wanted these lists to be. Like they're our recommendations for the places to go for whatever reason, um, but not just the the newest, most expensive cocktail bar um, or cocktail bars or beer bars or wine bars in, in a specific city. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the point with these lists too is like they're going to be <clears throat> updated regularly. Right, because it's it's supposed to be capturing this current moment, right? So, you know, we'll reach out to you in six months or nine months or whatever and say, Hey, exactly, we need you to update that the Seattle list. Because, you know, what's what are the you know, the 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 fun places to drink in Seattle right now change, right? It yeah. it constantly changes. And so yes, like will there be some fancy cocktail bars on this list? Yeah, because if you're in the mood, we'll say this is the place for like the fancy cocktail. But then mm-hmm. here's the place that makes a great cocktail that also has an amazing burger and it's just a fun time and, you know, no one's talking you know, below normal vo- voice levels, right? We're not in hushed tones here. Um, <laughs> I think all of those things have a place. And then you know, the only thing we really do at VinePair that's at all some sort of award is the Next Wave Awards. And we name one bar. And it's bar based on the bars we say. It's based on the bars we've been to that we've talked to, this is the best bar for us right now, this year. The bar that we think has achieved so much stuff in this country. But that bar's not going to be on the list. It's never going to win that award ever again. So they can always say, we were Next Wave Award Best Cocktail Bar 2022, right? And Mm -hmm. like someone else is going to – and we're going to go to those bars and ask them, hey, who would you nominate for 2023? Because bartenders go out and drink too. And I think that also is – so different because it allows the bar to never have to like lose that accolade, right? They won that accolade and they get to hold on to that accolade and they get to now join a group of people, of family people that will win that accolade in the future, but they never have to be, have it taken away from them. And I think the problem with the lists is once a bar starts falling, the accolades basically being taken up, being taken away. You know, the second a number one bar falls to eight or 10 or 12 or whatever it is, people talk and I don't, you know, maybe it's not everybody, but it, there's def- it, definitely in the industry, you know, you hear murmurs, Oh, something must be going on. Like, you know, I wonder if they're, they're off their game a little bit, blah, blah, blah. And again, I think that's just, that is what is always going to happen when you do ranked lists like this. It's just the, the nature of the situation. And, um, 
you know, that's why we, we have tried to avoid it. I mean, even these guys, right, that, like that you've written, we're not ranking. We're just saying these are nine places or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. I'm saying one through nine because that's really, that can be very problematic. Well, and it's also not like how people experience yeah. going out to drink. They don't start with the best bar and then go to the second best bar or, you know, at the 50th right. and work their way up to the first. I want to ask you guys one more question about yeah. this. That actually was prompted by what Joanna said a while ago um, about how, like, you know, the being placing high on one of these lists might sort of change the clientele at, a, at one of these bars. And I was actually wondering if maybe not for any of us, just given our own experience when we do, but I wonder too if there's a way in which um, ranking this high almost might, keep some people away like either fear of crowds or just like feeling intimidated like Mm -hmm. i I wonder if you're like oh wow i saw that attaboy was the number one bar in north america (sighs) but like am i gonna feel dumb if i go in there and say like i want to you know i don't know i want a cosmopolitan or something Mm -hmm. i just wonder if there's like a if it's sort of a weird thing where you're getting a certain kind of of um you know new client or new drinker who like wants to say they've been to the best bar in North America and check that off the list and, you know, post it on Instagram or whatever. And if at the same time you're keeping people away who, who are feeling like, oh, well, this bar must be super pretentious if they're with the number one or the number four or the number 11 bar or whatever. For me, I think it's more, can you get into the place? Yeah. Because uh-huh. I think sometimes after bars are on the, on the, this list, they become really, really obviously very popular and then you can't get in or you can't get in on in a way that you would like to if you're just going out for a drink on a, you know, Thursday night, but it's slammed and there's a line. Um, and I think that, that that sucks. Yeah, I think it changes the game for some <laughs> bars. Like, you know, I've heard of bars that have to hire bouncers that never had them before, that have to, like, manage a list, you know, at the door on certain nights that they never had to before. Um you know, I think it does attract a different kind of clientele, more of someone who just wants to say they were there, right? Take mm-hmm. their picture, leave. I mean, um, bartenders I've talked to said at some of these, some of the bars that make the top 50, especially in the, in the top 10, you know, all of a sudden, like, there's a lot of influencers that show up who sure. had never been before, but now you see everyone shooting TikTok and Instagram videos and, you know, their reels or whatever, just to say they were there, they're ordering one or two drinks. So the other thing that this these lists do that a lot of um, my friends in the bar industry will tell me is it freezes these bars in time. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you win with a certain cocktail program, people go expecting to have that cocktail program, right? So a lot of bars sort of become very safe, right? They, They stop pushing boundaries. They stop changing the drinks, et cetera, because someone's like, well, I read that this clarified milk punch cocktail is like the, you know, as close as I'm ever going to get to drinking holy water. And so, I need to have this. And so you, there's like this resistance then to taking it off the menu, even if your staff's tired of making it, you're tired of making it, like you want to do something else because that's right. why butts are in seats and revenues do go up. It's very, very, very clear, right? I mean, um, this one guy I was talking to about, 50 Best was telling me about a bar uh, in Cyprus that made the list and that basically all of a sudden he had like 30 people around the, like, out the door all the time. And he was like, dude, I'm a tiny little bar on an island. You know, like how the hell do I all of a sudden have this line? It's because of the list, because people are like, well, now that I'm, now I have to go here. This has to be added to my agenda of things to do, right? I have my Michelin star places and I have these things and it can become sort of almost like putting a bar owner in handcuffs. And I think, look, again, people who are in the top 10 are never going to tell you that. And people who want to ultimately reach the top 10 are never going to tell you that publicly but a lot of them will tell you that privately right it's because it's what happens 
So in that way, do you think that bars that are on the list at one point and then off the list, is that better for them? A lot of them say it's a huge relief. Really? Yeah. Wow. Or you'll have ones who like will say if they make it on the list, you know, especially if they're like in the sort of 20 and higher. So meaning like 20 to 30, not like getting towards one. Like, oh, it's an honor, but we don't take lists seriously. You know, honored, but we're just a cool, humble bar and we're doing what we're doing. And actually, I saw a few bars do that when the North American Top 50 list came out. Like Like a little bruised ego kind of thing. Yeah, like, you know, we're... We, we, you know, it's, it's it's always great to be included in lists like this, but you know, at the end of the day, we're just trying to be the best bar we can be, and like, we don't care about lists. It's like one of those, like, we we care, but we don't care. And then I think some bartenders are like, man, I'm so happy to not be on this, and I don't want to be on it. Well, and I think coming back to the Michelin uh, comparison, there historically has always been a sort of like thing you have to. There are just things you have to do to get three stars. Yeah, and there's plenty of incredibly talented, accomplished chefs and restaurateurs who don't want to do all those things to get three stars. They don't want to have the kind of wine program you have to have. Yeah. They don't want to have the kind of you know very very uh, intensive service that you have to have, etc. And so I could totally believe that there are some excellent bartenders and operators who are like, you know what. If I'm on the list, I'm on the list. If I'm in the, if I'm 41, I'm 41. And if I'm not on the list, I don't really care because we're doing the bar the way I want to do. And I'm not going to necessarily, you know, invest in one way or another in all the sort of bells and whistles you might have to have potentially to rank high on one of these lists. And again, we talked about how sort of unclear the, the, the criteria are. And in some ways, again, I think Michelin is kind of, it's good and bad that it's a little bit more formulaic, or at mm-hmm. least it's a little easier to understand. I think there are other things that kind of fall into that uh, category as well in the beverage alcohol slash restaurant uh, world that have a kind of a pretty clear um, formula behind them. Uh, to achieve a certain level of recommend of uh, um, you know recognition, but uh, I, I do agree, and I do believe that there are plenty who are like find the pressure or the things that would come along with it uh, unappealing. Yep, I completely agree, and I think you know Zach, you bring up a really good point here. I mean, one of the things that I think Michelin is good about is you kind of do know what that criteria is, and I really don't think I could tell you even from looking at this list what the criteria is besides, oh, they're going to the places that are really hot right now, culturally even, right? Like there's a lot in the top, you know, there's out of the top three bars on the top 50, two of them are in Mexico City, right? Mexico City is a very just hot culinary location right now. There's a lot of amazing bars there, but besides that, I don't know why those bars over other things. And that's why, you know, we go back to the point of like, I want to be told, right? Explain to me why this bar is at this ranking. Then maybe, maybe that's at least one way to somewhat start to fix a list like this. Um, you know, I don't think it's the perfect thing. I would, my, my argument would be just, maybe if I'm there, we should just do like, you know, gold, silver, and bronze cocktail shakers or something. I don't know. Maybe we should start this. <laughs> oh, it's too much work. But like, you know, I, I want like- Joanna just had a heart attack. Yeah. Yeah. Joanna, by the time I get back to Napa, <laughs> let's have an editorial plan. But, you know, I mean, like, I think, you know, and, and we, and you have to remember, like, Michelin did this because it's a tire company that wanted to be able to provide a tool to its customers to show them where they could go when they drove, right? Like, here are the best places to eat. Like, maybe there's someone who wants to give this as a, you know, I don't know, who, who out there, what kind of, like, maybe Amex wants to do this or something, right? Where it's like, we're just going to rank, we're not going to rank, we're just going to rate these bars, 
and you kind of know what the the rating system is and you get to keep it because I just I think the ranked list like this is just stupid and I think it's not fair to the bars and I think it's too opaque and I think it is ultimately a death sentence. Do we think there's any positivity in this bringing attention to a bar from a place that would never be on a list like this? Like Halifax, for example. Bar Kismet is number 49. Here's the problem. No one looks at bar 49. Like, that's what but I'm saying. Going to Halifax. I think if you're in Halifax, <laughs> you're going to that bar. True. It's the Cypress thing, right? It's true. like you described. True, true. That's Which, true. Whether that's good or bad for them, who knows? But yeah, I think it's like... It, I mean, that's kind of cool, but you also sometimes get the sense that, like, those kinds of things are included because it's like, ooh, wouldn't it be cool to have a bar from, you know, Nova Scotia on our list? Like, why? I mean, sure, why not? But, like, the bulk, the meat of the list is basically, like, seven cities. So, yeah. you know, we, we know what we know what's really going on. Right. And, and that's where, again, I think, yes, it would be great if you looked at the entire country, but it's just impossible to do that. And yeah. so you're basically saying to... Some people, right, and we've had these conversations on the podcast before, bartenders who are really talented don't want to live in a lot of these cities anymore because they're incredibly expensive. They want to go somewhere else, and they're opening incredible bars somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And those bars aren't getting looked at, and that is a problem if you're then going to say this is representative of all of North America or of the entire world. And, yeah. you know, so say this is a top 50 list made up of these 10 cities. If you're not these 10 cities, we don't look at you. Yeah. And then fine. Then then people know too. If I want to be on the top fifty bars list, I got to go. look. And I'm sure most bartenders are going to be like Adam. We know that already, right? If we're not in New York, but I think it, it allows. Then at least it gives a little bit more integrity than I feel like it has now. Yeah, I would agree. Fair. All right. Well, this has been an interesting conversation. I would love to hear what uh, listeners think too about this. Listen, others, do you use them? Do you not? Uh, do you think even Michelin's bullshit? I don't know. Maybe you do. Uh, hit us up at podcast at vinepo.com. We love to hear uh, everyone's thoughts. The emails we've been getting recently have been really awesome. And uh, Joanna and Zach, I'll talk to you Friday. Talk to you Friday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my Vine Pair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, Vine Pair Tastings Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the Vine Pair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.